Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Friends and patriots, thanks for joining me here. Buck Sexton with you all now. Appreciate you Coming to hang out in the Freedom Hunt, it is quite a day in the news cycle. We have a nuclear option, Tomahawk missiles, terrorist attack in Sweden, and everything else that's going on here and abroad to get to. Uh, I will open the lines uh, straight away, 844-900-2825, uh, and please do call in with your thoughts. Because I, I have a, a lot to say on Trump's first major foreign policy action here with 60 or so Tomahawk missiles fired off at a Syrian air base, air base suspected to have been used in the deployment of chemical weapons against civilians in Syria. Uh, this is multi-layered right away you look at this and there's the political angles of it there's the foreign policy angle the considerations that we should have about what could now happen as a result of all of this um what the second order effects may be what the changes in our force posture and even perhaps some of our additional deployments may be as a result of all of this now, we will get to the nuclear option, which was exercised in the Senate. Of course, Gorsuch is the next Supreme Court, is the newest Supreme Court justice. And uh, we'll talk about the terrible terrorist attack in Sweden as well. But I wanted to spend time first on what happened in Syria. It was last night, right after the show, that the news broke. I think I was, it, it appeared that it was imminent uh, before we finished up here. And then on my way home, I saw that, sure enough, missiles had been fired and uh, now we get to see the immediate aftermath. You have this uh, Shirat Air Base in Syria. Uh, the damage assessments differ here from a handful of Russian aircraft to uh, a little more than that. Uh, casualties seem like they were pretty low in terms of uh, Syrians that were hit in this strike. And then you saw the narratives popping up right away. People that were either upset about this because they feel like Trump broke with what he promised during the campaign. He did give some hints, perhaps even more than hints. He did give us some reason to believe that he was going to be a non-interventionist president, not a not an isolationist, which is really meant in a pejorative sense, but a non-isolationist. I'm sorry, but a non-interventionist meaning that he would not put us in a position where we were trying to solve the problems of other countries and doing so with our own blood and treasure. So this is not a huge military action by any stretch of the imagination. 
And if we look at this first and foremost as a military action, I don't think that it signals a huge foreign policy shift uh, or a, a change in philosophy for the president. In a sense, he is enforcing Obama's red line after the fact. He is, as I tweeted out last night, President Obama should maybe consider calling President Trump to thank him for enforcing his red line for him. This does have some diplomatic and foreign policy benefits, I think. But let's first look at the military side of this. Uh, it's not a major. It's not a major strategic uh, victory. It's not a major strategic strike. It is a message that is sent here. The, the message is that chemical weapons, as a tool, uh, as a weapon of mass murder on the battlefield, unacceptable. So that's a message that all countries should be signed on to. Of course, Syria is not. A signatory, uh, signatory to the chemical weapons treaty, which everyone realized quite a while ago, uh, was indicative of Syrian chemical weapon stockpiles, and they've had them for some time. You had the John Kerry deal where he said that they had gotten all the chemical weapons out of Syria. And even talking about this, there was some boasting, it seemed to me, about this, that there was uh, that they were so brilliant in their foreign policy that they didn't need to threaten anyone they didn't need to lose a single uh, lose a single soldier they got all these chemical weapons out but the reality is they did not get all of the chemical weapons out as we saw um, I think there are many complicated layers here and I'm trying to get through as many of them as I can so I'm starting with the, the military side of it and as I said there was a strike the strike is a uh, certainly a message that is sent and received by the Assad regime. It's not going to stop Assad from continuing to drop bombs on civilians. It's not going to stop his helicopters from rolling barrel bombs out. And it certainly can't bring back the close to 100 people who were killed in the sarin gas attack in the neighborhood or in the general vicinity of the city of Idlib is actually a smaller village to its south. Um, it will, certainly will not bring back the between four and 500,000 people who have been killed in the Syrian civil war. Uh, this doesn't change very much on the ground at all. So it is limited risk from the U.S. perspective, at least right now. You're sending uh, Tomahawk missiles in. Uh, we have not committed to a major U.S. troop uh, presence as a result of this. We're not saying we're going to topple Assad and rebuild him. They are claiming, and now you get into perhaps some of the more important aspects of this, they're claiming that they being different administration figures. Um, well, here, here's Nikki Haley at the United Nations, where she's U.S. ambassador to the U.N., talking about this. The world is waiting for the Russian government to act responsibly in Syria. The world is waiting for Russia to reconsider its misplaced alliance with Bashar Assad. The United States will no longer wait for Assad to use chemical weapons without any consequences. Those days are over. So that message, I think, has been sent and received by the administration. Okay, fine. They will not allow them to use chemical weapons. A lot of people have been killed in Syria, a vast majority of them, of course, without chemical weapons in terms of the casualties chemical chemical weapons usage in syria is a uh numerically i know it's it's horrific and you see this and it has a more a visceral impact especially because people 
saw the uh, young children who were affected by the sarin gas were killed by sarin gas. Uh, but this war has been grinding on for years. And if you're going to look at this from the perspective of duty to intervene uh, because of a, a moral obligation that we have, it's not clear to me why that moral obligation is particularly different in the aftermath of a chemical weapons attack than it is in the continuous uh, slaughter of civilians. If it's about saving lives, then we should have taken action much sooner, which is not an excuse to never take action, but I just think we need to be very cautious about where we allow this to take us. Uh, what is our responsibility? What is What does the Trump administration view as our responsibility in, in dealing with Syria? Um, you have the usual foreign policy voices now coming out to explain why this was a good move. It did seem like overwhelmingly this was a bi- there was bipartisan support for this maneuver. Um, that was what I picked up. Uh, this is that's just my own. Of course, the Democrats generally hate everything Trump does, but you even had some left wing journalists who were saying it was it was the right move. It was presidential. I, Hillary Clinton was just in the day before saying that we should blow up one of Assad's airfields. So there there really is a a bipartisan buy-in here. I, I don't know if that's something that should make us feel better or should make us perhaps even more cautious about all of this. Because this is a gesture, a humanitarian gesture, a gesture of solidarity. It could set up further actions and operations that would degrade and eventually help the overthrow of the Assad regime. But we are at the early stages of what would be a very long process. And while it is perhaps necessary to talk about how inept the Obama administration was in dealing with this problem, um, especially when we think about how they told us that they got rid of the chemical weapons in Syria and they were wrong, They've also told us that Iran will not get a nuclear weapon. They promise that's not going to happen because of how brilliant their deal was. Well, their chemical weapons deal was definitely not brilliant. Um, But we are in the early stages of how this could work to our advantage, meaning now you have a credible threat of force on the table. Under Obama, you didn't have a credible threat of force on the table. Now you have credibility among your allies that you're willing to take action and commit to your cause and not just go and talk and talk, uh, which has been the case for the most part with many of the countries that would like to see an end to the fighting in Syria. There's been a lot more talking and diplomacy among those nations than there has been worthwhile action on the ground. Um, so this is just a start. And they're telling us, the administration saying there will be more of this. Uh, they're saying that this is the beginning of what may be here. You've got John McCain himself. Was this the right strike, in your opinion, at the right time? Yeah, but I wouldn't emphasize too much one off here. It depends on the reaction of the Syrians and including the Russians, uh, because uh, a lot of these things have got to stop. The barrel bombing has got to stop. Uh, the slaughter has got to stop. So. Um, and we have work to do, like establishing a safe zone and arming the Free Syrian Army. Uh, so there's a lot. Th- this is the beginning, Matt. I think there's a little too much euphoria here this morning. I think it's important. I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's a signal. States is listening carefully to the best national security team that I've seen. But we got a long, long well, way to. 
He's correct, at least with the we've got a long, long way to go. This is the very beginning of what could be a worthwhile shift in strategy, but it is the beginning. And there will be some very uh, real pitfalls that they face if the administration goes down. I'm not talking about sending 100 or 150,000 troops and trying to do in in, uh, Syria what we did in Iraq or in Afghanistan, but even just a greater level of involvement. This was pretty minor as a strike goes. We informed the Russians beforehand. Quite certainly the Russians passed along to their Syrian hosts that this was going to happen as well, which kept casualties from this strike on this airfield very low. Uh, It was many Tomahawk missiles fired, and I think the last casualty count that I saw was six Uh, Syrians were believed to have been killed in this strike. So we're at the very beginning, and, and I think there was a lot of exhilaration out there from the people that support this. There are people, and I know, who say, not our problem. This isn't also constitutional for the commander-in-chief when we're not under threat. I know Rand Paul and others take this perspective to just fire off missiles because someone somewhere did something bad. That is a valid argument and one we should spend some time thinking about and discussing. That this is not really our fight and hasn't been our fight for years is also a very valid point of view on all of this. But for those who believe that this was uh, such a necessary change in in policy and such a necessary shift in the approach to the continuing humanitarian disaster that is before us in Syria, I think it's largely because they view this as a change from what we had before. Uh, There is a sense that America really did look like it was that its word wasn't to be trusted in a sense. I know you'd say, well, Buck, the president's not America. Of course. But I mean, in the views of of the rest of the world, when President Obama draws a red line and does not follow through on that, everyone takes notice. When President Obama um, decides that domestic political considerations will be taken as more important than his obligations to allies or even his obligations for R2P, responsibility to protect. He brought in people like Samantha Power and Susan Rice, and these are individuals who have built careers around the need for humanitarian intervention using U.S. military force. Put aside for a second whether you believe that's a good idea or not. What happened to those senior figures in the last administration? They just didn't do much of anything. Not with not with Syria. So it's a change. That's part of, I think, why you have so much. Honestly, it was there was jubilation last night for many as a result of this. And I want to tell them it's in the right direction. It's a start. But it also could cause us some very real problems. Right now, it feels like it was the right thing to do because we're Americans. We don't like to stand idly by while terrible things happen anywhere. And any time that we have an opportunity to punch a bully in the face, we like to take that shot. But there are very real consequences to all of this as well. I'll talk to you more about that um, after the break. I do. It is Friday. I know we're talking about some very heavy, serious stuff, but we're, we, we don't break with Freedom Hut tradition here. It is Freestyle Friday. It is Action Movie Quote Friday. Action. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Come to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action movie quote.
844-900-2825. We can bounce around on a different topics. Don't worry about whether you're going to call on the Action Week quote or talk about Syria. Whatever you got, team, it's Friday. I want to have as much of the uh, listenership audience here drive the show as possible. I want Team Buck at the helm with me as much as they're willing to be. It was fascinating, uh, team, to see last night a break in the ranks of the super Trump supporters out there over this issue. I, I thought it would come on health care. It really didn't. The, the the core Trump supporters that I see online that I know both in media and that just you can kind of get a sense of this from looking at <clears throat> what's trending on social media. They didn't leave him over health care. Uh, it was conservatives who went along with Trump maybe for the election. Yeah, they had their uh, they had their concerns. But the, those who were really in it for Trump all the way from the beginning, no, nothing yet. This was the first time I saw people that have been on the Trump train all along say, hold on a second, I'm not with this. And I see this as mostly an indicator, but not yet a major move in one direction of the or the other as either an interventionist presidency often called a neoconservative style foreign policy or not this is i think the president did react on emotion understandably when you see the horrific imagery of uh, children that have been exposed that have been murdered with sarin gas but this doesn't really do a whole lot that's the truth a lot of people don't want to. A lot of people want to talk about how, how strong Trump is, and you know this was like a, a Chuck Norris fly kick to the face of the Assad regime, and it it sends a message, as I've said, and it certainly sends a message to Russia, Russia as well. But it is just one step, and it's a pretty minor one. I think that people are extrapolating a lot from this, saying, "Oh, well, this means that Trump will be, he'll be a stronger foreign policy president." a more muscular U.S. presence in the world than what we have with Obama. I think that's almost certainly going to be the case. But it doesn't tell me exactly what we're going to see happening in Syria. And as somebody who worked very closely in and spent time in and knows Iraq well at a, at a professional level, uh, seeing how that all, well, honestly came apart and then had to be put together back together again uh, by our troops... I have very real concerns, not just about what the future holds for Trump's foreign policy in Syria, uh, but also what this means we are going to see from some of Assad's allies, most notably Russia and Iran. The Iranians have a lot of ways of getting back at us that at least leave open some plausible deniability. I'm very concerned at what they may do in Iraq. You have Shia militias in and around Mosul that are an essential part of that coalition to destroy the Islamic State. If there is some change, and I don't know what they would do, but all I can tell you is if those militias uh, were to turn their guns on Iraqi Iraqi army troops, uh, we would have a mess and a nightmare on our hands. And do the Iranians have that power? I wouldn't be surprised if they did. Uh, so there are some very real issues that come out of this, as well as Russia, which I want to get into in a second here. Stay with me. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. So the Russians have said that 
this is an act of aggression, which is certainly true. Uh, 60 Tomahawk missiles is pretty aggressive. And we know that the uh, Russian government is, uh, of course, saying that they're not even, they, they deny that chemical weapons were even used. Russia's been bad for a long time, everybody. The Democrats now hate Russia because they think that Putin stole, or at least they want to pretend that Putin stole the election from Hillary Clinton. Um, but the rest of the stuff, they just, they, that's convenient for them, right? The, the crackdown on journalists and the things that get the left particularly upset about Russia don't have to do with Ukraine, Crimea, Georgia. The things that get the, ups- the left upset are, the cra- are being, uh, well... The crackdown on journalists, uh, Putin's stance on same-sex marriage and and everything uh, around the same-sex movement, um, and Hillary Clinton in the election. That's why they hate Russia. All the other, Russia has nukes and is the successor state to the Soviet Union, and all of that is largely irrelevant to them. They, They don't like Russia because of the Hillary stuff and the other things that I mentioned. And Russia's been bad for a long time. The Russian people are not bad, but the Russian government is. I mean, Putin's not a good guy. So now we have to deal with the possibility that the Russians were aware of and didn't do anything about the chemical weapon usage against the Syrians. But again, let's just speak with clarity here. If we're talking about the morality of what's going on, the Russians have been complicit in exterminating men, women, and children in Syria for a long time and, and have been active in doing it themselves with their bombing campaign, especially in and around Aleppo, the most important city in northern Syria. So they're killing people. They're killing civilians. Uh, it's by no means beyond them, I think, and, and we shouldn't consider to be beyond them to be involved or to be turning a blind eye. Um, I think that's more likely to be turning a blind eye to chemical weapons storage, Uh, chemical weapons deployment, all of it. They just simply do not care. Um, So I think this is important for us to look at. Now, the Russians have a serious military. They still have many nuclear weapons, as we know. And the big concern here would be an exchange with the Russians that leads to a great powers war, I don't see that happening. I think the people that are running around today saying we're on the brink of World War Three, uh, most of the time just don't know what they're talking about. Some of them say it because it just gets people or it gets ratings, right? It'd just be a catastrophist, you know. We're on the brink of World War Three. We're not on the brink of World War Three. Okay. That, that's sure miscalculation could happen in any number of ways, and I can't, I can't see the future. But a, a, a strike where we gave warning on an airbase in Syria. That's not going to that's not going to create a conflagration, a major fight between us and the Russians. But continuous strikes, a no fly zone, uh, landing U.S. troops in large numbers and putting them in places where they might be coming into contact in the field with Russian Spetsnaz, which is Russian special forces or Russian GRU military intelligence, any number of situations, never mind the. IRGC, the Iranians, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, they're active in Syria, very active in Syria. Um, That's not a problem of dealing with Russia, but that's also something we would have to keep in mind. So we're not on the brink of World War III. This isn't going to lead to that, this one strike. 
But we also do need to be cautious about what are we trying to achieve. And like I said, the definite win here is Trump is not Obama. He approaches the world differently and he will fight. He will punch back and he will fight back and not just sit around and watch things happen that are an affront to uh, you. In this case, an affront to um, international norms so that's that is a good thing i'm not saying the strike was necessarily a good thing other than that though because militarily it's not much doesn't change anything syria is still in the middle of a civil war islamic state is still a horrific and jihadist machine of mass murder day in and day out the assad regime is doing the same the you can read articles. I don't recommend you do it because it'll keep you up at night and it's deeply upsetting. You can read articles, though, about the machinery of torture that the Assad regime has had in place for many years now. They uh, have ho- special hospitals where they send people who are continue to be tortured in the hospital, but they're trying to keep them alive. That's why they're in the hospital. And the, I mean, the worst kinds of stuff, the, the things that you would read about with the Saddam regime as well. Very similar, by the way. Saddam was a Ba'athist. Guess what? The Assad regime also Ba'athist, uh, and they 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 literally borrow things from the uh, fascist Nazi playbook in terms of their approach to governance, and they view themselves as totalitarian. I mean, they they are a totalitarian party, and they are strongmen and. It is not any we are not in a much better position vis-a-vis Syria today than we were yesterday. And in fact, you could argue that we're just in a more precarious position. Our allies see this and take it as a good thing. It's not on the brink of World War Three. And people were saying that just go, oh, you know, people will listen if I just scream at how it's World War Three. It's all, you know, for some of these people in the media, it's always about to be World War Three when it's going to be World War Three. I'll tell you, OK, it, but it's always World War Three. Enough with that. Uh, unless something horrifically unfortunate and unforeseeable happened based on what we've seen here. That's, that's not the case. Now, what now I know there's a Russian vessel that is a Russian warship. That's getting close to ours, the six fleet and the U S six fleet in the Mediterranean. It's not going to open fire on our ships, but it's gesturing. It's posturing. It's saber rattling. It's uh, reminding us that they're there. And, you know, if we fire more missiles, which is now we've put ourselves in a position where there could be this expectation with the Syrian people that after the next strike, meaning the next uh, usage of chemical weapons, if there if there is to be one, which now, by the way, why would Assad do it? Now he'll just use old school bombs to kill people. And the fact that we somehow view that as so much le- uh, so much less reprehensible is not really grounded in any moral truth. I have to be honest with you about that. Murdering innocent men, women, and children is murdering innocent men, women, and children. I mean, the way that people die when they're, and I know it's, I'm not trying to be uh, grisly here, but the way that people die when, when a barrel bomb levels their home and they're buried in the rubble is, you know, this is horrific as well. So that's not, that's not being stopped by any of this. Um, this is a moment to rethink the strategy, but it is not a moment of the implementation of a new strategy just yet. All right, I've been talking to this a bunch. Let me take some of your calls here. Uh, Stacy in Indiana, uh, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Shields, hi, Buck. How you doing today? Shields, hi. I'm good, sir. Thank you. Uh, got a action movie quote for you. Okay. 
Hey, a uh, good guy runs up to the bad guy, but he can't shoot his gun. Bad guy turns to him and says, what? No kiss, kiss, no bang, bang? Uh, I don't know. What is that? That is Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes, 1993 Demolition Man. Ah, first Demolition Man. I have seen Demolition Man many times, but you, you got me on the quote there. I was not uh, not up on that one. Well, we, it sounds like you're in the middle of uh, uh, a, a, a windmill or something there. So we're going to let you go, Stacy. But thank you very much for calling in. Uh, Steve in Texas. Welcome to the uh, Freedom Hunt, my friend. What's up? Hey, um, I, uh, this is, uh, by the way, husband of Dr. Lee from Texas. Um, Mr. Mr. Dr. Lee is calling? All right. Very good to talk to you, sir. Yes, yes, indeed. She'll die. Um, so I agree with your assessment that, uh, the bombing of the airfield in, in Syria, uh, not a lot of military significance, um, but at the very least, uh, it did a couple of things. Uh, it showed it was a show of strength. Now it shows the world that we've now got a president that has a backbone. And when we say we're going to do something, you better watch out because we are going to actually do it. I think that's a pretty, that's not something to be underestimated. I think that, that uh, does have uh, some positives there. Um, one more positive, though, I would say about it, though, is the fact that, you know, the, the Hillary and the rest of the Democrats have tried so hard uh, to, you know, create this connection between Trump and the Russians and, you know, being in cahoots with them on all manner of you know, yeah, I mean, this is the first major foreign policy. I totally agree with you on this, Steve. It's the first major foreign policy decision that Trump has made, and it's a punch in the face to Vladimir Putin. Now, if you were seeing the journalists, uh, the journalist community last night on on Twitter, which is, I think that's what Twitter is for. It's for people. It's for like pop stars and journalists to just talk to each other. Um, they were all saying, "Oh, well, he gave Russia the heads up because he's so in Putin's pocket." I'm like, look. Giving giving Russia a heads up is not showing you're in Putin's pocket. That's showing you don't actually want to want to trigger a much larger war, which would be very unwise. Exactly, a confliction notice with another superpower is just uh, you know that's just good business. Um, so, well, my question though is, so if the Russians uh, Russian troops on the air base um, that the chemical weapons flew out of, I have no reason to doubt the intelligence that, you know, uh, says that that was the case, but my question is, what what on earth, what does Russia have to gain uh, from being complicit in this, or at least, at the very least, you know, lying about uh, helping, you know, get the weapons? I, th- I think, I'll tell you, Steve, I think they don't, and, and Shield Time, my friend, thank you for calling in and give Dr. Lee my best. Um, the, they're, they don't care. They've been dropping bombs on civilian areas uh, in Syria without really much of, of uh, any concern from the Obama administration for for years now. They've been complicit. I mean, the Assad regime is just one long rolling atrocity after another. And no one's really done anything about it. So why all of a sudden would it be uh, different for the Russians? And if you're willing to drop bombs on 
crowded marketplaces. And I've seen, I've watched, the, you can watch it yourself, by the way, on Netflix, the documentary about the white hats, or the white helmets, rather, um, who go in and try to save people who are under the rubble uh, from the air campaign. The Russian jets that are laying waste to whole areas of, of cities. And there's no real anti-aircraft weaponry that most of the rebel areas have. And as we know, they're not even going after ISIS. They're going after anti-Assad, non-ISIS factions, because that's, if you're going to prop up the Assad regime, you want to create, and they largely manage to do this, you want to create a bifurcation, a binary choice of it's Assad or the Islamic State lunatic, head-chopping, you know, nutso evildoers. And Assad's really bad, too, but in, in a choice of Assad versus ISIS, the civilized world goes with Assad. You know, the, the, the guy wears a suit and will sit down for TV interviews. I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day, and that's the decision-making process that the Russians were involved in, which is just get rid of the anti-Assad factions that aren't ISIS, and then all you'll have left. And that's what they were able to do, and it's one of the terrible legacies of Obama's foreign policy in Syria is just that. That they allowed that to happen um, because there was an early phase in which they could have done more and, and built a more robust, assisted a more robust anti-Assad resistance that was not ISIS. But I also have very clear eyes about this, my friends. They're not exactly uh, all about Jeffersonian democracy either. These fa- these factions we're talking about, if you look at a, a lot of the non-ISIS factions that we say we could work with, they're just non-jihadist but they're islamist and you're still going to have a lot of women walking around if they're in charge in beekeeper suits i'm just putting that out there it's it is a concern uh all right i've got to run a break here by the way i want to talk to us i would uh, talk to us i want to talk to you i want us to talk about also uh the gorsuch thing is we've been talking about that a lot but we'll hit it for a little bit but this uh terror attack in sweden is noteworthy and we have some guests i've got a uh good friend of mine who's a door kicker to talk about the soldier's eye view of what's going on here and then we'll also be, we also are joined by a friend of mine who's a national security reporter down in dc to give us a little additional what's what today uh, we'll hit that in the next hour and a uh, third hour we'll I'll, maybe we'll get more into the i know it's tough to do action movie quotes when we're talking about a very serious subject but um we'll, we'll, we'll transition into that in the third hour i'm hoping you'll you'll bring some of the uh, action movie flavor my way uh, 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK and team. We'll be right back. I do think that conspiracy has gotten uh, more mainstream in general in this country. I think a large part of it is driven by the now months-long narrative without a shred of evidence that Donald Trump worked with the Russians or his aides worked with the Russians to hack the election i don't even like the phrase but i use it uh, not if not ironically then i I use it with with disdain Uh, hack the election what does it even mean but there are people out there that are saying some pretty wacky stuff about this well you you have a a completely acceptable and understandable point of view because i think it's i think it's technically speaking, correct. So I think correct is always a good defense for what you say. You got Senator Rand Paul out there saying that what Trump did is uh, unconstitutional. It doesn't make any sense for us. I think it's unconstitutional. And then the question whether or not it is actually advisable, we should have a big, robust debate. In the Iraq war, everyone was gleeful to go after an evil dictator, Saddam Hussein. And yet 
the end result was that Iran became stronger, and now the same loud cries for war against Hussein are the same loud cries for war against Iran. So if we topple Hussein, no, if we topple Assad, what comes next? Will we like the Islamic rebels that take over? Perhaps they hate us in Israel more than Assad does. Uh, that's all. That's all very valid. I know some of you listening, I'm sure, agree with that point of view. By the way, I don't see the administration moving to topple Assad, at least not with U.S. forces. The Kurds have secured a sizable portion of northern Syria, uh, Kurdish uh, YPG militia, um, but they and and they've had U.S. air cover for for this. But we're not about to send in fifty or a hundred thousand troops. It's just I don't see that happening with this administration. At all. But then you got, speaking of the conspiracy side of it, that's what I started with here. Tulsi Gabbard, who is, uh, what's she, a congresswoman from Hawaii. I'm seeing here that she doesn't, she, she's not sure that she, that this happened, that the, the chemical weapons were used. What? What does she know? She's also the one, I think, who went to Syria, right, and had to sit down with Assad, and people gave her a, a very, yeah, here we go. Asked if she believes evidence of it, this is from a CNN reporter, of Assad's actions is faulty. Uh, She said, uh, I remind you of what happened before we launched the invasion of Iraq. She was asked about evidence that that the Assad regime launched a chemical attack. Yes, I'm skeptical. This is a, this is a congresswoman from, wow, a congresswoman from, uh, from Hawaii and a veteran. Uh, So... Then you've also got the Ron Paul side. Oh, I don't have to wait. Play at 106. We'll get as much as we can. It doesn't make any sense for Assad in these conditions to all of a sudden use poison gases. It, it's zero, I, I think it's zero chance that he would have done this, uh, you know, uh, deliberately. And It's definitely not zero chance, uh, Dr. Paul. Uh, and it's not the first time. So if it were the very first time, I could agree there's some skepticism with why I do this now. Unless he felt like, unless the Assad regime felt like its back was up against the wall, but they've done this many times, uh, and we just haven't had an administration in the past that cared to do anything about it. That's the big change. We have a different administration now, so we don't just see this horrific footage and do nothing about it. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, everybody. We are joined by our friend Sean Parnell. He's a former U.S. Army uh, Airborne Ranger. He served with the 10th Mountain Division for six years, retiring as a captain. He received two bronze stars and the Purple Heart. He's also New York Times bestselling author of Outlaw Platoon, Heroes, Renegades, Infidels, and the Brotherhood of War in Afghanistan. Sean, uh, great to have you, my friend. What's going on? Hey, Buck. It's great to be here as usual. So, Sean, I've... Look, I'm I'm giving people my uh, former intelligence CIA analyst guy perspective on all this. We've also we've got some uh, national security journalists that'll join, and uh, and of course the the folks at home weighing in. But I wanted to get your opinion as somebody who's been out on the front line, who's been a, a door kicker, and and has really been out there in in the teeth of these conflicts against radical Islam and jihadism. Uh, what do you think about a more uh, this more muscular Trump foreign policy that we may be seeing? I mean, are you are, are you thinking it's better to keep our enemies on edge, or are you concerned that we're going to quickly find ourselves putting guys who were like you out there on the front lines and, and having to fight in places where we might not necessarily have a critical U.S. interest? 
Well, yeah, look, I mean, I, first of all, I, I applaud Donald Trump for, for his response. I mean, I think it was swift, decisive, bold, um, and I think it needed to happen. I mean, I think it's really important, Buck, that we don't allow a precedent to be set globally uh, that chemical weapons are okay to use on the battlefield. I mean, war is hell enough as it is uh, without them. And so when you've got a, a brutal dictator committing war crimes and gassing little children to death, that, that is not a world that I want my kids to grow up in. And, and really, when you think about it, just like any other criminal, they need to be brought to justice. People who commit war crimes do as well. And I think... It, the United States has the power, right, and the compassion to do it. Uh, and because of that, I think we have a moral responsibility to get involved. Now, like, I would never tell you that I think, like, sending 100,000 troops to Syria is the answer. But we need to do something, whether it's uh, a, a more active role than we've taken in the last eight years, that's for sure. Do you then do you support the uh, deployment of special operations, uh, special operations troops, air combat controllers, uh, other uh, special units uh, out there on the Syrian battlefield to help ground forces as long as they're primarily not U.S. ground forces? Or, you know, if, if 10 or 15,000 U.S. infantry was all that's needed to get rid of the Islamic State, and let's just say uh, to help topple Assad as well, if we we're going to go down that path, do you think that that's a mission set that we should be taking on? Well, I mean, so if I, I don't know, you know, honestly, Buck, I'm not sold on the idea uh, of getting on the, on the ground and helping the free Syrian army or the rebels, because truth be told, I don't really know who a good guy is and a bad guy is on the ground right now. So for me, you know, I would rather see, and, and by the way, I, I'm of course, you know, American special operations soldiers, if they're on the ground, you know, con- conducting missions that they're specifically trained for, I mean, they can handle themselves in any country on the face of the earth. But for me, I think at this point, because Syria is just, I mean, you know this, man. It is such a quagmire. To me, I think the kinetic has to, I think that the solution has to be far, far less kinetic, you know? Like, I would, I would rather see, like, the Trump administration getting involved in Syria and saying, okay, we are going to force a mandatory ceasefire, and we're going to evac all the civilians that we can, give people a time frame to get out, and then just let Assad and the Free Syrian rebels and ISIS just beat the hell out of each other until they're done. And so as far as I'm concerned, and I hope, I hope that in that process, Assad is taken out and somebody else does it for us. And when and when that's all done and when they've had their fill of blood and death and chaos, the U.N. would come in to help them pick up the pieces. And if Assad isn't already gone already, we figure out a diplomatic solution to get him the heck out of there. But it's it's very serious. It's just balanced so perilously on a nice edge that I just wouldn't throw American special operators in there. Not a clear-cut mission and end state. We've been down that road before, and it hasn't worked out well for us. Yeah, what were the, the lessons that you wish you could have shared, having been in, having been out there in combat in Afghanistan? And to, to those who are listening, Sean's book, Outlaw Platoon, is, is an excellent read and one that I, I can highly commend to all of you. Um, but if, if you had had the opportunity to speak, not just up the chain of command to the Pentagon, but I mean, if you could have sat down with uh, with civilian leadership, with the president, with the White House and said, look, this is what you need to know about Afghanistan that you probably don't know at your level. I mean, what would that have been and how would you apply that to the Trump administration now dealing with Afghanistan still, Iraq, more and more looking like Syria in some capacity and who knows where else? Well, I mean, first of all, if I, if I had an opportunity to do that, my, the first thing that I would say is trust 
the, the people on the ground to make the best decisions possible in the situation that they're in. I mean, we are trained to do that. And, and the United States has the best military in the world. Right now, we've got, we've got Secretary of Defense Mattis, who is one of the most well-known and respected military leaders in the world. And I think I would even wait to say in the history uh, of the U.S. military. And, and, and we should be leaning on him very heavily uh, to come up with strategies, uh, and, and specifically an exit strategy on what the mission in Syria looks like. Just listen to the military leaders that have, that have been leading our, our army and the Marine Corps and the Air Force for the last 15 years, Buck, during the longest period of war in our nation's history. Guys that are in political positions, let the warfighters be warfighters. Let the strategic level decision makers like the generals make decisions. And, and more than anything else, back them regardless of how things of how of, of what happens. You know, I, I'm so sick and tired of military strategy shifting with the political winds just because a president changes. Our military strategy in a certain country should be about what's best on the ground. And so and so if I if I could talk to, to the Trump administration and it seems like to to. to to, I'm, I'm happy about it, and it seems like he's doing that with, with Mattis. It seems like he's trusting his military commanders uh, to make the right call. I think the, the, the tomahawk strike on, on two Syrian air bases was a good call, um, and it was tempered. We didn't throw in ground forces, and, and all in all, I mean, I, I'd say it was successful, but ultimately I hope Trump just listened to him. Sean, uh, what's your next book, by the way? I know you're, you're working on it. Can you tell us, or is it too early? No, I can tell you. So I, I am making the jump from nonfiction uh, to fiction. Fiction, and, and my next book is is a military spy thriller. So what I was trying to go for was like House of Cards meets Jason Bourne. So there'll be a, a significant political element uh, uh, in the book as well as well as as my hero and my protagonist, boots on the ground in foreign countries, uh, you know, kicking butt and taking names. So I'm excited for it to come out a year from now. Um, it's kind of a difficult jump for a guy like me who's really never written fiction before to do it, but it's been a it's been a heck of a process, and, and hopefully I can I can keep these books turning out and get a, a little fiction thriller series of my own going. Sean Parnell, scholar, veteran, patriot, guy you want at your side <laughs> in a bar fight. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Everybody, check out Outlaw Platoon. Sean, thank you for your service, my friend, and come back and hang out with us again. The Freedom Hut when you get a chance. All right. Yes, thanks so much, Bob. All right, brother. Talk Talk to you you soon. Shield time, man. All right, we're going to hit a break, and uh, we'll be right back. Mike in Alabama on WBUV. Thanks for calling the Freedom Hunt, my friend. What's up? Well, I'm just uh, grateful to get through. I've really been enjoying your show since you took over, uh, and I've just uh, wanted to call in and ask um, what the current, in your opinion, what the current uh, relationship between Syria and Lebanon is. Because I know that... uh, They've been kind of kind of close, re- closely related in the past, and how that might affect things. Well, I mentioned first of all, thank you for your kind words about the show. And I mentioned before, I think actually yesterday, or no, maybe it was a, yeah, yesterday. Pity the Nation by Fisk is a very good book uh, on the Lebanese civil war, which deals a lot with the the enormous role that the Assad regime. Because keep in mind, now it's Bashar. Before it was his father Hafez al Assad who was in charge, and and they had had largely colonized Lebanon. I mean, they, they were running the show in Lebanon, and that has become less so the case, but they still uh, they still are uh, being charged with, you know, the, the uh, government, the Assad government was involved with 
According to U.N. investigators, if I recall, the assassination uh, of a senior politician in Lebanon some years ago. So the Assad regime right now has its hands full with other things. Uh, Lebanon has also been a corridor, but but it's still there's still a very important relationship, not necessarily a good relationship, but an important relationship between the two countries. Also, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah has at key moments come to the aid of the Syrian regime. And uh, I remember when when I was actually in Jordan at the Zatari, at the Zatari camp, I spoke to some uh, some non government folks uh, about what was going on just across the border, and they, and that was at a time when there had been Lebanese Hezbollah Shia fighters who had crossed over and just just annihilated a an entire village uh, that was anti-Assad, but not ISIS. Um, and so that's they, they've been playing. A, there's been a, a role play there or playing a role there. Uh, so r- right now, I mean, we don't hear much about it. Um, Lebanon has called or Lebanese Hezbollah uh, has called the, the U.S. strike in Syria idiotic. So there that, that gives you some sense of where they stand. But that's not surprising from from Hezbollah. Uh, I mean, Hezbollah is a client uh, organization of President uh, Assad, as it is also of the Iranian regime. So the, the tentacles of of the of the monster in the Middle East, uh, they they touch on Hezbollah, Assad, uh, the Iranian mullahs. Uh, there's a lot of conne- there's a lot of connectivity between those groups. Okay, I just uh, I don't know how to keep all the players straight. <laughs> there's um. there's a there's a lot of them. Uh, there's a lot of them and. Uh, they also shift their allegiances uh, pretty pretty quickly and, and frequently. But yeah, that's uh, I mean, right now Lebanon is uh, has has plenty of problems, um, but it's not quite in the place where it was before, where where the Syrian government had almost colonized Lebanon. I mean, the Syrian government was was calling the shots in Lebanon. Uh, thanks for calling in, Mike, on uh, WBV. I appreciate it. Uh, I wanted for a couple of minutes here. I want to talk about. Gorsuch, yay! Let's take a little moment, everybody. Stretch out, sort of chill, relax. Come out to the coast, have a few laughs. Um, just try to mellow out a little bit here. We'll talk about a victory. A victory we can all... Well, Democrats are not excited about it. Certainly Chuck Schumer. He's very unhappy about it. Uh, but the rest of us, I think, are pretty darn happy about it. Gorsuch is now... The next Supreme Court Justice of the United States, and that is a very good thing. Great pick by Trump. This is in the in the plus column for the Trump over Hillary decision, and I had friends who were conservatives, including those who make a living pushing conservative ideas, who were telling me, and some of them were even openly saying this, but they were telling me that they would take Hillary over Trump. And I was like, that's just crazy. You can't do that and be a conservative. I mean, that's... I just think that's a really bad idea. And the judicial nomination process and having a conservative on the court was one of the very compelling, no matter what you thought about Trump on the campaign trail and everything else, no matter what you uh, thought about any of that, getting a Supreme Court nominee in like Gorsuch was a very compelling reason to just Eat your peas, pull the lever for Trump, no matter where you no matter what you thought about the administration or what you thought it would be like uh, in terms of its conservative bona fides. You got to eat your peas for the Supreme Court here. And uh, Gorsuch was confirmed today, everybody. The nomination of Neil M. Gorsuch of Colorado. 
to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is confirmed. Yay! We all get excited about that. Uh, the nuclear option was exercised to do this. I don't see this as a big deal. If we didn't do it, the Democrats were going to do it. We were already on this pathway, everyone. It, it just so happened that... Uh, do, do any of you doubt for a second that if you had a Democrat president and, and Democrat control of the Senate, they wouldn't have done this? Of course, of course they would have. Of course they would have. It's not, it's not even a serious conversation. And they've played these games in the past. But as I say to you, hypocrisy doesn't bother Democrats because the relentless and insatiable lust for power that the Democrat Party is really based on means that the rules don't matter. Winning is all that matters. Winning power. That's what matters to them. So hypocrisy is largely irrelevant. Uh, It doesn't bother them, doesn't slow them down. And that's why you have Schumer. Clip 111, please. When history weighs what happened, the responsibility for changing the rules will fall on the Republicans' and Leader McConnell's shoulders. They have had other choices. They have chosen this one. No one forced them to act. They acted with free will. We offered them alternatives. They refused. When the dust settles, make no mistake about it, it will have been the Republicans who changed the rules on the Supreme Court. After in a post-nuclear world, the rules. if the Senate and the presidency are in the hands of the same party, there's no incentive to even speak to the Senate minority. That's a recipe for more conflict and bad blood between the parties, not less. You know, this shouldn't be a problem at all because a Supreme Court, the advising consent function of the Senate when it comes to Supreme Court nominees should just be as the person qualified. But we all know that's not what it's about. We all know that's not what the discussion turns into from day one it is about how will this person rule ideologically will they do things that make progressives happy or not that's it it's not about qualifications no no serious person could say gorsuch isn't qualified by the way keep in mind that that for a while the democrat line here was oh well trump is an illegitimate president so until the russia investigation's over we can't i mean they didn't even know what their line was They, they didn't even know what the opposition was supposed to be Because it was so flimsy and scattered. It was so deeply disingenuous. Chuck Schumer, Republicans looking back, they'll say, oh, it's all nonsense. It really is. Uh, But Chuck Schumer, nothing nothing really slows this guy down. He's... He, he He is relentlessly dishonest and gross. Chuck Schumer, you gotta give him credit for that. He just... He never... There is nothing... What is the uh, the line by uh, by Flaubert? Uh, he would willingly pay for the pleasure of selling of selling his office. I mean, you know, it's it's just the worst. Dude. This guy. And whenever people want to lecture us, oh Trump, what am I going to tell my children about Trump? Oh no, because he uses the coarse language. I'm like Chuck Schumer is like the most powerful Democrat in the country right now. We're talking about ethics and morality and being honest and decent and true. Uh, Chuck Schumer, I swear. Maybe we'll get, we should invite him on the show. I will never go on the Buck Sexton show ever, ever. Buck Sexton, he changes the rules. He's the worst. Chuck Schumer will never, never come on here. Uh, Paul in Florida, you're on the iHeart app. And now you're on the Freedom Hunt. What's up? 
Shields, hi, Buck. How you doing? Shields, hi, Paul. I'm good. Thank you for the call. Hey, great. Hey, I was just curious. I, I know that the King of Jordan, as well as the King of Egypt, recently met with uh, President Trump. Um, and I was just curious, you spent some time in Jordan. Why is Jordan so peaceful compared to the rest of that area? And is there any way that Jordan could play a role in Syria and maybe, um, I don't know, kind of uh, govern governed by proxy or, I don't know, so some, some way to get Syria more stable? Yeah, well, I think you said King of Egypt, but you, you, meant, you meant President Sisi, right? Just so we're... Yeah, 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 yeah. Hard, just hard. just make sure that's right. We're not we're not we're not bringing back like uh, you know the the, the the dynasties of of Egypt here. Um, no, the pharaoh. I meant to say pharaoh. Yeah, exactly. The the the, the line of the pharaohs. No, the Jordan is interesting. Well, it's actually funny because people refer to it as the Hashemite kingdom of boredom. No offense, Jordan. Not the most exciting place in the world. Uh, I have some very good friends who are Jordanian, um, uh, but and that's actually true. That's not just me throw. That's not a throwaway line. I actually do have some very close friends who are Jordanian. Uh, but <laughs> some of my best friends are Jordanian. It is, uh, why, why is, this is a, I'm trying to think of a way to say this in 60 seconds, which is what we have till the next break. That'll be worthwhile. Let me uh, say this. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to stall here. Hold on. So it, it has been a refugee camp for Palestinians, a refugee camp for Iraqis, a refugee camp now for Syrians. It is the pressure valve of the region that, helps prevent things from being much worse than they are, but it's a relatively small country, small population, and uh, it is v- has very good relations with the West, very good relations with America, with Israel. Um, so, I mean, if, if we're going to get into why Jordan is... Well, for one, well, is there anything in Jordan that could that could you know be modeled in other other countries in the area? Yeah, no, it's a very interesting question. I'm trying to th- I'm trying to give it some some due thought here. One part of it is that they've realized that uh, having allies in the West and working with the Israelis when they can instead of against them is just smart. Uh, and I think a lot of it also comes from leadership. Abdullah is a savvy guy and is uh, doing a good job as a as a monarch. Uh, we got to hit a break. We'll be right back. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. All right, everybody, welcome back. Very pleased to be joined by our friend Adam Crato. He is a senior writer for the Washington Free Beacon. He covers national security over there. Adam, great to have you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, so we know about the airstrikes. I've been talking about it on the show. Um, what can you tell us in terms of some of the l- more late-breaking uh, additions to this story. What else are you following in the aftermath of uh, these Tomahawk missiles getting sent over by President Trump to uh, teach a lesson to the Assad regime? Sure. Well, of course, there's the um, natural reaction from the Iranians and the Russians, both condemning it. We have uh, Russia calling it a dangerous move and the Iranians mimicking that language. Um, but look, these guys have been on the ground for some time trying to bolster Assad. We see the Iranians moving a little bit more into that conspiracy theory territory that they love so much, uh, saying that, 
you know, the U.S. works with terrorists to engineer these chemical attacks and then kind of uses it as pretext to uh, launch a strike. That's, of course, nonsense. But over here, uh, what I'm really looking for in the U.S. is one response from Congress. Are we going to get an authorization for use of force um, for formal war on uh, ISIS and Syria militants? And uh, two, are we going to see any more from the Trump administration? Yeah, around 60 tomahawks are great destroying a base, but uh, this, is, this is hardly the end all for this type of strike. We're cleaning up a mess that the Obama administration let brew for way too long. Yeah, this is just the beginning. If it's going to have any real impact, it would have to be the beginning of a new approach, both uh, with carrots and sticks. Uh, in this case, the sticks are real, though. In this case, uh, the credible threat of force would be much more likely to motivate certain actions, not just on the side of the Assad regime, perhaps, uh, but also our allies, I think, would take more seriously that there is a realistic possibility that we would do more than just uh, talk and talk over this issue. But on the Iranian side, of this, I know you follow Iran very closely. That, to me, is where there's a, the greatest likelihood, or perhaps there should be the greatest degree of concern for a reprisal attack. The Iranians have a lot of uh, cards to play, uh, a lot of leverage across the Middle East, but specifically in Iraq, and given the sensitivity of the counter-ISIS operation in and around Mosul right now, I worry the Iranians could get us back and do so with a degree of plausible deniability. Yeah, that, that's actually a very real concern, and I share it with you. Um, Essentially, we've been in quite a mess in Iraq for some time, and it hasn't really been reported out well enough from people. But essentially, we're uh, at best working with, at uh, least uh, working around Iranian forces that work with the same Iraqi forces that we are partners with in Iraq. And it's very easy for these Iranian agents, if they wanted to, to potentially carry off either a strike that impacts the U.S. directly or the Iraqi forces that uh, we work with over there. So there's certainly uh, room for meddling. There's also room for meddling in Syria, depending on what we do, whether it's more military advisors, whether um, it's formal troops uh, in the future with this. The Iranians are on the ground. Uh, they work with Russia closely, and there's uh, uh, really, I think, an opportunity for a bit of a proxy war. But saying all of that, um, I do wonder just how much the Iranians will do now that we see Trump is willing to take action, that red lines are not just words you say from behind a podium in Washington, D.C. Um, I would not be surprised if the Iranians internally are expressing a lot of fear. Um, but we could honestly do a lot of damage to them. So I, I would advise them, if, if I was in that government, be very careful how you tread with this administration. This is a corollary, but not directly related, uh, obviously, to the Iran, to the strikes against Assad's airfield in Syria. Uh, but speaking of Iran, you have a piece here, airplane sales to Iran put under critical review by Trump administration. Just fill us in on what's going on there. Sure. Well, um, about a month and a half ago, uh, Boeing and Iran announced that they were moving forward with these plane sales. This is um, about 60 or so planes being sold by Boeing to the Iranians. Now, that's already a problem because the Iranians routinely use civilian aircraft to ferry weapons, uh, to transport 
forces across the region. Um, that's just something they've been doing for a very long time under cover of Iran Air, their national air carrier, and other ones there. So for that reason, the Boeing deal was problematic. But when I first asked the Trump administration about this, um, they had said to me, well, we're essentially continuing what the Obama administration did under the Iran nuclear deal, that is promoting these cells, granting licenses that will help move them forward. Um, that was very problematic to a lot of lawmakers. So uh, just a couple days ago, when Boeing and Iran announced their next step, this memorandum of understanding, um, I went to the Treasury Department and White House again and actually found out that it's a very different story now than it had been a month and a half ago. Uh, just about everything under the purview of the Iran deal is going through the National Security Council for review. So that is uh, sales to Iran with planes that require licenses. We could potentially not grant Boeing these um, licenses to sell planes, but that also expands to the general Iran deal. All of these concessions and promises made by the Obama administration uh, are now under review and could be subject to uh, a no-go, essentially, from the Trump administration. And Russia, of course, looms very large, going back to the strikes and the aftermath and possible follow-on responses and, and consequences from all this. Uh, the, the Russians are speaking very uh, loudly about their displeasure with what happened, but of course there were no Russian air defense systems that were used to try to shoot down those Tomahawk missiles. Uh, the Russians got a heads up before the operation, uh, and people are saying maybe the Russians even gave a little extra heads up to the Syrians. Uh, what yeah. do you see happening there? Um, well, look, I actually think that this is a good step in terms of uh, uh, our relations with Russia, even if the Russians don't like it, uh, for too long, we have really let them take the lead in the Middle East and on a range of other issues. And the Russians uh, saw the U.S. power vacuum in that region and decided they could bolster their own clout. This essentially is a very, very big sign that this is no longer the case. The U.S. no longer cares to be absent from the Middle East and in the problems that are affecting our allies over there. And that should send a very loud message to Russia that uh, aggression that affects the U.S. end goal is not going to end well for them. Um, and I wouldn't really expect much pushback from Russia. I know that they like to flex their military might and talk tough, but when it comes down to it, I don't really see them uh, countering U.S. forces, certainly not on the behalf of Assad or the Iranians. Now, we know that the uh, Israeli uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has spoken out strongly in support of the Trump strikes in Syria. Uh, also, the Saudis have spoken out in support of it. Uh, there are others that have come out to say that they believe this was the right action. Do you see this turning into a moment to coalesce this coalition, I mean, to bring people together to do something about Syria more more than what's been done in the past, which quite honestly, has been very little. There's been a, an ongoing, slow, somewhat successful campaign against the Islamic State, but there's really been no strategy, no multinational strategy in place to try and bring the Syrian civil war uh, to a close. Do you think that there's now an opportunity with our allies to move at least more in that direction, although I know it's very, it would be very preliminary? 
Yeah, but I, I do think you're right. As an early step, this is the right direction. Again, under the Obama administration, it was disarray and not much movement. Uh, we sent a message to our allies in the region, the Saudis, the Israelis, and others that were not really willing to stick up for their defenses. This problem is not just impacting Syria. It impacts the region. The Israelis are dealing with ISIS terrorists. The Saudis, of course, have an issue with this as well, growing Iranian strength, growing Russia-Iran access in the region. So uh, Trump kind of actually taking um, a concrete step in terms of this red line and not letting Assad uh, drop chemical weapons on his own people, I think is really a moment where U.S. allies are saying to themselves, well, maybe we've got our friend back in the region, and that's a good thing. One more for you, Adam. U.S. officials can't confirm Obama-era counterterror efforts ever succeeded. What are we talking about here? This is on the freebeacon.com. Yeah, so essentially um, government investigators with the Government Accountability Office uh, for years have been tracking this program known as Countering Violent Extremism, or CVE uh, for short. And this program had been criticized from the start because the Obama administration, rather than seeking to address actual problems with Islamic radicalism and terrorism, decided that they were going to be politically correct and abstain from using any of these terms. And they based their counter-terror operations on this, on the rhetoric rather than the actual problem. Uh, Since that time, uh, what they found through DHS and the other agencies that take part in this, there's no way to measure any sort of success of these programs. There's no evidence that this theory that if we don't mention radical terrorism or Islamic terrorism, that it will empower local Muslim communities and others to kind of galvanize around the U.S. and emphasize de-radicalization. There's just no proof this has worked. And I would say, on the other hand, we've seen a lot of proof of U.S. individuals or or, uh, immigrants that have been permitted entrance into the U.S. conspiring to work with ISIS. The Trump administration has announced uh, many, many indictments and convictions on this front, and we saw them to a lesser extent under the Obama administration because there was an effort to hide them. So I think at the end of the day, what we're looking at is more evidence and proof for the Trump administration to say, look, that approach did not work and it hasn't worked for a long time. And we need to fundamentally reshift the way we look at counterterror, particularly in the U.S. Adam Crato, senior writer for the Washington Free Beacon. He uh, has his latest up on freebeacon.com. Adam, have a great weekend. Thanks for hanging out with us. Appreciate it. Always my pleasure, buddy. All right, team, 844-900-2825. We are on Friday, which means action movie quote Friday applies. We can also talk about serious stuff with foreign policy or Syria. Whatever is on your mind, my friends, I am here at your disposal. All right, back in a few. Action movie quote Friday, my friends. Carl in Indiana wants to try his luck. What do you got, Carl? You're a funny guy, Sully. That's why I'm going to kill you last. Well, that's commando, my friend. That's right in the. That's right in the. That's right in the wheelhouse. So of course, um, yeah, yeah. Before that, he's like, he's like, you know, have some drinks, give us all a little more time with your daughter, and then he's like, you're a funny guy, Sally. So I'm going to kill you last. Yeah, I know. Commando is a very watchable, very watchable film. Anything else in your mind, Carl? Or are we just uh, actually movie quoted out? That's it. Well, Buck, I, I just got to say I love your show and I, I love your analysis. I, I feel you're honest. I feel you treat the callers uh, with great respect, which I, I listen to a lot of radio and I notice uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, they get annoyed and they cut people off. And But you're patient. 
uh, you're smart, and uh, I think you're the future of uh, conservative radio. So Thank you very much, Carl. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you. Shield time, my friend. Uh, yeah, I, I don't understand the the impulse uh, that some have, and there are a lot of talk radio shows in the country, as you know, but to, to be mean to the people who... I mean, it's one thing if someone wants to challenge you and or or is being rude, but there are some who are just kind of mean, and I... I don't. I don't get that. Maybe maybe there are some audiences that think that there's a certain sport to just being nasty to people, and they enjoy that. But not not here. It's not how we do things. Anyone who calls in, uh, I I respect their willingness to call and give me their time, and and they will be treated with respect. Uh, so oh oh. But speaking of respect, or in this case, the lack thereof, Brian Williams, who is really a doesn't exist. The whole notion that you can have somebody who just has his hair a certain way and his jaw a certain way and that he would be America's newsman and you'd pay him tens of millions of dollars to sound just like this, to look into a camera and read somebody else's words. Uh, Brian Williams, uh, he is back, as you know, despite lying about that whole what happened to me when I was in Iraq thing. By the way, the Brian Williams memes, they like, you know, I was there. I mean, I saw Brian Williams memes of, you know, he, the the landing of the Mayflower, uh, Brian Williams at the crucifixion. I mean, people were just making Brian Williams memes uh, left and right. Uh, so I'm not even sure the Mayflower, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm generalizing. I forget what they were, but they were crazy. They, they were like really going after Brian Williams memes. I, in a sense, I'm kind of impressed that he's willing to put himself back in the, but back in the the spotlight and and deal with what can be a very nasty business. I'm, I was always amazed at how often I would go on CNN and I would be talking about something that wasn't even controversial in my earlier days. There, I would be discussing some aspect of national security, and and I was always anti-terrorist. I, I wanted the terrorists to lose, and I thought that. All Americans would be with me on that. But no, actually, there are some segments of the CNN audience that hate you if you're if you're opposed to the terrorists, believe it or not. Uh, but they wouldn't tell me that. They would just tell me. They, well, they'd say that and they'd all say, and, you know, P.S., you're, you're really ugly. Uh, I always thought that was such an interesting psychological study. People telling you when you're on TV. I mean, we try to be presentable on TV, but it's you're not an actor. You're not a male model or female model if you're a lady who's going on TV. Uh, but yeah, people always telling me how ugly I was. That was an interesting uh, that I I knew people would say that I was that the the uh, opposition and the left would say that I was dumb. But I was like, wow, are there really people sitting at home who are like, I'm just going to tell you you're ugly. It was an interesting uh, interesting experience. You're like people are really people are the worst. <laughs> people really have problems. Um, but anyway, back to Brian Williams, who is not ugly, who is looks like if you built a newsman in your garage, sort of like Weird Science when they built Kelly LeBrock. If you built a newsman, remember that movie Weird Science in the 80s? Good movie. Uh, I enjoyed it. It would be Brian Williams, but he was on the deck of uh, one of the warships, I believe, and he said the following. We see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons, um, and they are beautiful pictures. I just want to snuggle up to one of those Tomahawk missiles. So beautiful, Tomahawk missile. Get cozy with me for a second. Tomahawk missile, do you know what I did in Iraq? I've got a story for you. The beauty of our weapons, unsurpassed. I mean, it was, 
Just just want to give a long, sweet smooch to a tomahawk missile. I mean, it was really weird. It, it was weird. I don't know what he was even talking about. I am guided by the beauty of our weapons, and they are beautiful pictures. I, I know he's quoting Leonard Cohen, who, who uh, some people in the generation above me are big Leonard Cohen fans. I know a lot of, a lot of folks are. I don't know his stuff, really. But, uh, yeah, Brian Williams, it, it, that he was... The pre, and in a lot of ways, the preeminent nightly newsman in the country for a while, uh, based on, I don't know, based on just, he looks the part. I mean, it really is being a, one of these TV journalists is so much of it these days. It's changing a little bit. Now you, now you actually have to, if you're coming up the ranks and you're younger, you either have to be, well, uh, outrageously attractive or, uh, you have to have some background, you know, like work for the CIA or work in the military. Or that that helps. Um, but uh, otherwise, it's just like trying to be an actor. You have to look the part and sound the part, and then you can get the part. Uh, why Brian Williams was worth the $10 million a year that NBC was paying him before he had that little problem with the truth. But the beauty of our weapons. I just, it was such a, go back and listen to that one again. Oh, that's a good moment for me to say. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Because of all of the coverage and discussion of the Tomahawk missile strike in Syria that President Donald Trump ordered, it has really overshadowed any coverage or discussion of the latest terrorist attack in which we can uh, assume that jihadism is the motivation. Um, this is similar in tactics to other attacks that we have seen. This one in Stockholm earlier today. Uh, Stockholm is a lovely city and uh, the Swedes are, are a wonderful people. And it's deeply distressing to see this happen to them. It's distressing to happen anywhere. But in the case of Sweden, there is a growing recognition of reality that I think is seeping into the minds of the general public. Now, we've had some press coverage recently, some discussions about uh, the immigrant uh, the immigrant problems that have come to the fore in Sweden, the uh, epidemic of sexual assaults that have been happening in Sweden uh, at the hands of many of these uh, many immigrants in case in many cases refugees who are brought into the country and when you have a country of only 10 million people with uh, crime rates previously you know a couple of decades ago at least and maybe even 10 years ago Sweden had 10 million people and had the crime rate of like central Vermont and that is beginning to slip away and they have also been very indoctrinated, and it's and it's true indoctrination. It's in the schools, and it's uh, across all media there, and it's even even reflected in the legal system that multiculturalism and diversity worship are required uh, required of uh, Swedish people. If you want to be in good standing in Swedish society, you have to be willing to you have to buy into that. But before I, I get further down that. Road. Let me just give you some of the details. In Stockholm, there was a truck attack. Four people were killed, many more wounded. Uh, the New York Times headline here, terrorism is suspected. It, it's 
when we are 99% sure that a uh, that an incident is terrorism, I, I wish they would stop with the hedging. It's not unintentional, by the way. The, the language that they pick in these incidents is meant to slow down the conclusions, is meant to take some of the impact of these events away from the public, uh, because this is not the narrative that the New York Times and many other liberal outlets want to be a part of. And the narrative is that there is a problem in Sweden, and there's a problem in other countries as well, uh, of jihadism, of a holy war that is being waged, in many cases, by individuals who have come as refugees, which there's something especially perverse and disgraceful. I mean, we're talking about terrorism and murdering innocent people, so I don't know how much hair splitting we can really do. But there is something that is particularly grating uh, and uh, just disgusting about being in a country that has either taken you or perhaps it was your parents, taken them in as an act of kindness, and then you turn around and you kill innocent people because of your ideology in that country. You just kill anybody that you can, which is clearly what happened here. Um, this would be like offering somebody you know, shelter from the storm in your home and you wake up the next morning and you know everything's been stolen out of your house. And you know that, that's, in this case, though we're talking about murder. We're talking about death. And this is not going to get much attention because, of course, there's the story of the uh, strikes in Syria. I have to tell you, there, the, those strikes are much more interesting as a policy discussion than as a uh, than the event them, itself really warrants. It's not as big a deal as we are all being led to believe right now, uh, based on the media's coverage of it. Uh, look at Clinton; he fired missiles at the he fired missiles at a at a pharmaceutical factory in the Sudan. Uh, he fired missiles on the morning of the convening of the grand jury on the Monica Lewinsky trial. You think that was a coincidence? So, uh, but back to Sweden for a second here. And Sweden's a country I, I know a bit about. Uh, you know, when I was in the NYPD, there also we have very good, the NYPD has very good relationships with the uh, police, counterterrorism police services of a whole bunch of countries all over the world. The NYPD Intelligence Division does, and the Swedes have been worried for a while, but don't really want to express it too publicly. Because to express their concerns would be to admit that bringing in hundreds of thousands of Muslim refugees comes with a cost. There are consequences to this as well. And even if a very small minority engage in terrorism and a small minority engage in just general criminal activity, in the case of Sweden, it's quite noticeable. And you also have an inability or unwillingness to assimilate in many cases, meaning you people who aren't learning Swedish language. And we get back to the discussion of no-go zones. And of course, in this country, you have the people that won't hear any of this. Uh, they, they don't want to believe for a second that there could be some truth to the uh, more nationalist pro-sovereignty movements that have sprung up in Europe and even here in America in the context of Trumpism, where bringing in foreigners who don't share your culture is okay at a certain level, but at a, at a, at a point it becomes problematic. It does cross a threshold and is no longer just something that you can do and say, well, this is a good in and of itself. 
But Sweden and terrorism is a particularly interesting case because there's the immigration aspect of this. And, and I had, uh, maybe it was about two or three years ago, I remember having dinner and now I'm pulling a Tom Friedman. You know, the article I'm writing just happened to have a great conversation in Dubai with my cab driver and he gave me this perfect quote. And I was like, really? Uh, isn't that convenient? Uh, but I'm having dinner with this uh, Swedish lady. I wasn't, it wasn't just the two of us. We were at a group dinner. It was like 10 of us. And I was talking to her about Sweden. And she was obviously very progressive and very Swedish, tall, blonde, uh, very, very nice. And I pushed her a little bit, though, on the issue of what it's like over there. And she said, you know, the Swedes have started to feel like, why do we, we pay these really high taxes? And now we're sharing services with people that don't buy into this, who don't pay taxes. They just live off the state and they don't adopt our ways and they don't want to speak our language and they don't want to be like us. They just want us to pay for their stuff. And Swedes don't feel comfortable talking about this openly, but they realize that there is a problem. They realize that this is uh, not the way it's supposed to be. This isn't what they signed on for, so to speak. And that is, but that's more on the immigration side of it. On the terrorism, on the terrorism front, uh, Sweden is a country that if the position of many on the left and and certainly all the islam apologists out there and there are a lot of them and uh, i used to deal with them when i would go on cnn they, you know every time there's a terrorist attack and it's well why this has nothing to do with islam or you know, why do you you why do you suggest that jihadism is an ideology it comes from despair or it comes from poverty or it's just it's just the same stupid or, or you know it, it, it's this has nothing to do with islam like well does Islam have a bigger terrorism problem than other world religions? Oh, no, of course, it does nothing, no problem there. I'm like, ugh. We have to just keep having the same argument because people are delusional. And the delusion, by the way, comes from a virtue signaling impulse, meaning the people that are often going on TV, well, there are two aspects of it, really. The people that go on TV, and I know some of you are like, Buck, what are you talking about? Watch MSNBC, and you'll have, every time there's a terrorist attack, MSNBC and CNN in particular Bring on the same quote experts who usually have expertise in nothing, uh, but they will bring on these. Uh, they have expertise in being propagandists for the most destructive uh, and regressive political force in the world right now, which is political Islam. But they'll go on TV and they'll defend it. They'll go on TV and say it has nothing to do with Islam. They'll go on TV and call everybody who does speak the truth racist or or Islamophobic, uh, xenophobic, whichever phobic, whichever phobic they can fit into the conversation. And what they usually will say is this is nothing with Islam and they pivot to and the real fear is Islamophobia. That's the real concern that we should have. Our real worry is about Islamophobia. Oh, okay. And then they'll even I remember I was on TV once and they we had just there just been a I forget which one it was because I've been on TV over there many times after horrific jihadist Muslim terrorist attacks. And they were saying, well, you know, we. We talked about this, but Buck, aren't we, shouldn't we be concerned? There was a, a a mosque in Florida that received a very mean voicemail or something. I said, well, you know, we've got uh, 60 or 80 or 100 people who are lying dead right now because of jihadism, and we, we don't get to talk about that. We I get to talk about a voicemail on a, oh, Islamophobia, Southern Poverty Law Center says it's on the rise. Uh, oh, okay. Um, the reason they do this, by the way, because they're not stupid people who go on TV and say this. Um, it, they're incentivized to do it and they're incentivized to do it because the liberal media will 
give them the benefits of towing the party line on this, which means money and TV appearances and contributorships and books and everything else. Uh, And also among their cocktail party friends on the left to go on TV and to always repeat just this this pablum, this nonsense about how it has nothing to do with Islam. It it keeps you it it shows that you're an open minded, uh, wise, non-racist, good person, unlike those Trump people who are all so racist and horrible. Uh, Meanwhile, people are blowing themselves and many others up time and time again around the world in the name of Islam. There are atrocities that are being visited on large numbers of people on a regular, daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis in the name of Islam. Islamic countries across the Middle East and beyond are well behind where they should be economically, socially, and otherwise because of something. Maybe we can start to talk about what that something may be. Uh, But you have these experts who go on TV who say that there's no problem here. There's nothing to be worried about. And it's very frustrating. Sweden is interesting in this context because you can't find a place that is bending over backwards more, that is trying harder to be accommodating. And that's really the word. It's, It's not accepting. It's accommodating. Oh, what can we do to make the what can we do to make the Muslim refugee population in this country like us more and be more comfortable here. That that's the Swedish attitude about it. Uh, you know, well, what what benefits can we give them and what programs can we set up? That that's their attitude about this. It's been changing in recent years, but that has been the prevailing attitude. And that you would have a get another one of these attacks where it uses a vehicle. I believe there was also gunfire, four people killed. Uh, you have over a hundred people in the last twelve months that have been killed in jihadist car attacks right they use a truck usually and they just drive and drive around and mow people down it's over 100 people killed in europe just in those kinds of attacks we have what recently just happened uh near the house of parliament on westminster bridge in london uh this is just a a, a worthwhile sanity check think of the last time a think of the last time you can think of a non-muslim jihadist vehicle attack that killed a bunch of people are you thinking? Are you thinking real hard? Can you can you think of any? I'm gonna I'm gonna guess the answer is no. Think of the last suicide bombing, and I know people would say, "Oh, Buck, what about this?" Is where some pseudo intellectual would come in from CNN. Excuse me, uh, Mr. Sexton, but what about the Tamil Tigers who are not? Okay, yeah. When was the last time one of them blew? Oh, it's been a while, huh? A couple, like a couple of decades, maybe. Um, so when? What is it then? Why do we have this? Oh, it's because the the way the media covers it. You mean the same media that always says that Islam is a religion of peace and that Islamophobia is the real threat. They're the reason we think that there's a terrorism problem with Islam. Uh, of course, there's a terrorism problem from within Islam. It's not all of Islam, but it is from within Islam. And anybody who refuses to say that is just either an idiot or a liar. Uh, so now that we've established that, Sweden as a target um, is interesting to me because the Swedes do everything they can. We often hear on the left that jihadism comes from a rejection of policies right this is really rooted in foreign policy disputes u.s support for israel or u.s wars in the middle east and in fact the jihadists themselves those who will take it upon themselves to act in the name of isis will say that oh well because of what because of the u.s bombing campaign that kills innocents in syria that's why we are mowing people down in nice in berlin in london now in stockholm that's why they're doing it right And there are some people on the left and journalists who think of themselves as quite fancy who agree with that argument at its core. They'll say, well, yeah, that's really what this is about objection to U.S. policies. 
No, what Sweden shows us is that jihadists, that radical Islam is rooted in a hatred of the other, uh, a hatred of us, and, and a hatred of those who do not fall within the very narrow parameters of being true Muslims to them, true believers, jihadists and, and uh, Islamists. Um, I want to finish this discussion with you, but uh, I have to go into a break here. So let's finish it up on the uh, flip side. We'll take a call or two and... Screens lit up in here. Let's take some calls. Uh, Brad in North Carolina, WPTI. Hey, Brad. Hey, Buck. How are you this evening? Good, sir. Thank you for calling in. Yes, sir. I want to start off saying something about the uh, the strike, and then I uh, go with the movie quotes. Uh, I feel like you know um, there was some different media outlets saying that Mr. Trump, when you campaign, that you said you were against things like this. And and I understand that, but until somebody's put in the position and given the, I guess you could say the knowledge or the or the intel that he's given uh, on on how to act or, or or decisions to make, it really you know it, it it doesn't make sense at that aspect. He's gonna do what's best for the American people. I feel. Uh, just so you're saying that you can't that. you can't know how you're going to be as commander in chief until you're actually sitting in the commander in chief's chair, basically. That's exactly right. Um, I was in the service and uh, had a top secret clearance, and uh, like I say, until you see that intel and you're sitting in his shoes or you know walking his shoes, you you, you can't say. I mean, you can say everything you want on the campaign trail, but until you're sitting behind that desk, it's a totally different ball game. Yeah, I I, I think that's a fair point to make, and. I also don't think this is the sea change that a lot of people are saying. Uh, I don't think Trump ever said he wouldn't he wouldn't fire some missiles if he thought that somebody was uh, stepping out of line on the world stage. If he decided that we were going to invade Syria, well, yeah, then the the, the response that some of the pro-Trump side seemed to have last night to me suggested they thought this was a prelude to invasion. I, I don't see that. That's that's a long way away from this. You know, we didn't invade the Sudan. We fired missiles at Sudan under under Clinton. Uh, so there, and there are plenty of places where we've been dropping missiles and bomb or firing missiles and dropping bombs for a while. We have not invaded. Uh, so, yeah. Yes, sir. Indeed. I feel the same way. I mean, it's it's not like we're getting ready to to mount up and roll out. It's it's more of a you know, hey, this is who this is this. I'm not afraid to use this. We have this, and and this is where I stand. Yeah. Right. Although it is, it is a, a lot of. What does a Tomahawk missile cost? I'm assuming it is it is very expensive. So that was an expensive strike we had against that Syrian airfield. Uh, just thinking about thinking about that as a taxpayer. And I, I read the the Russians said that like a couple of dozen of our missiles didn't hit the target. We say that only one missed it, but that's, a, that, that's an expensive expensive little piece of hardware to just go you know fall in the ocean somewhere. I, I'm a little like okay. Uh, I feel like all I feel like all of them should be hitting the target. I'm a little uh, maybe I'm asking too much, but you've got two boats sitting out there full of full of sailors, you know, uh, uh, manning manning, the, manning those boats, you know, to to, to send them off. But the movie quote was, uh, "Give me your boots, your clothes, and the keys to your motorcycle." Terminator Two. In the yes, sir. bar in front of the bikers, uh, the biker gang, and unfortunately for him, he denies Arnold the cyborg's request and ends up face first on a very hot grill. 
Yes, sir. Yeah. And he gets the sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, he does, he does get the sunglasses at the end. Uh, I'm, I'm two for one. Two, wait, am I yeah, two for one this time? That's right. All right. That's, that's, I still maintain the belt. I still have the champion belt. Brad, thank you very much for calling in. Shields high. I appreciate it. Um, I guess uh, I was going to probably talk more about Sweden and jihadism, but that's kind of intense for the third hour. Uh, maybe we'll get into that. I also want to discuss... Um, uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, I want to discuss what's going on at Harvard, because making fun of, of crazy college social justice lunatics is, is a good time. That's a good way to end the show, so I feel like we'll get into some of that coming up here. But if you want to call in, action movie quotes now, we're we're taking them, everybody. 844-900-2825 or anything else that is on your mind. And, uh, oh, by the way, if you're listening, please do uh, follow me on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, and uh, you'll be in the Team Buck feed there, and uh, it's a great way to keep up with all the things we're doing and talk to, talk about talk to the show with uh, talk about the show with other people, all that good stuff. All right, quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty, where you're the party, and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. He does indeed, my friends. Lines are lit. Let's hit him. Alex in Alabama on WBUV. Yes, sir. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm all right. How are you? Okay, movie quote Friday. You ready? Oh, yeah, man. Action movie quote. Let's do it. Okay, here you go. Yeah. Yeah? That's it. Uh, you're gonna have to give me more than that. I, I need I need more context than one word. <laughs> That's not gonna fly. Uh, okay. I'll give you one hint. You're a lousy shot. I hate lousy shots. Uh, I I guess we'll hit the buzzer. You got me. What what is this? Huh? What is it? Cobra. Oh. Yeah, okay. okay. Action movie, very legit. I mean, you have to give me more than yeah. The lousy shot was a real quote. Uh, but okay, Cobra, Stallone. Weird movie, but definitely an action movie. And uh, Stallone is one of the action movie greats. So uh, Alex in Alabama, thank you for calling it. Appreciate it. Lee in Virginia, WPTI. What's up, Lee? Hey, how are you? I'm all right. How are all right, you? great. I got a quote for you. All right, let's do it. Right, thank you. I got a quote. Uh, they blow up a building... We blow up a city. Mm, John Travolta and Swordfish. Yes, sir. Bam! Why don't we just? Why don't we just do that? Uh, what are you asking me in, in for reals? Yeah, I'm tired of uh, the media <laughs> of coverage of this. This I'm, would be, I'm, I'm being dead serious. Yeah, I'm, I know I'm that would joking. be a more that would be a moral issue, sir. Uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to blow up a city uh, with what? a lot of people in it. That would be that would be bad. But, uh, but I, I, I give you a, sword, Swordfish is a um, is a movie that is action based. So there's that uh, we got that going on for us, which is nice. Uh, but Lee in Virginia, have a great weekend, my friend. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for the action movie quote. I'm kind of impressed that I got that one. I'm not gonna lie. Like I'm I'm in I'm doing a little victory dance in here right now. That was not an easy one. Uh, uh original squad Saturday. Lori in New Jersey. She wants to get in on this action movie quote action. What's up? Buckman. How are you, Lori? I have been. I am great. I'm great. I couldn't. I have. I've had a shortage of listening the past week or so because I've been doing some uh, long haul traveling. However, 
that gave me the opportunity to catch up on some action movies that I actually hadn't seen before. So uh, I have made note of a couple of quotes, which I want to run past you. A couple of quotes. Whoa. I'm, I'm running the gauntlet now. Let's see what we got. All right. Are you ready? Yes, ma'am. As for our problem with Providence, let's not cry over spilt guineas. Ooh, I don't know if we can drop drop that, please. Yeah, no. Lori, we can't say say things like that on the air. Okay. Uh, I have no idea what that movie is, so. Okay, then I'm going to give you a second quote from the same movie to give you a chance. I mean, I think this is a really legit movie. Fuck, I'm not pulling your leg here. Here's the second quote. Is this Goodfellas? No. Oh, okay. One more. I'll always have a job. I'll just arrest innocent people. I don't know. What is this? No way! I can't believe it! I know. My my imperfections are, are showing through here. What is it? No, no. The Departed. Oh. Okay. Now, do you consider that legit? I, I, I mean, action movie. That's a little bit of a. That's a little bit of a. Um, that's a little bit of a stretch. Maybe I think it's really more crime oh. thriller than a straight up action movie. But I, I don't like to parse oh, okay. too much. Well, no. I mean, I'm not trying to be unfair. That's but, all right. That's uh, close. What action movies did you see since you've called in? What What, what did you add to your oh, repertoire? God. Oh, my gosh. So, so some of them were repeats because, um, you know, I do like to revisit some stuff. So um, I saw, um, and now you're, you're, so this is back, going back to uh, a Friday a couple weeks ago. There was The Departed. There was, uh, oh, I watched the original Die Hard because I hadn't seen that for a while, uh, which, which is always good viewing. Which was a book I found out last week. I did not even know that. Yeah, actually, it was a book, Um, and I saw something I'd never seen before. I'm not sure it quite fits in the category, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It was very entertaining. Yeah, I think that's action Uh, movie comedy. It's sort of like True Lies. uh, That's with with Brangelina, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm ashamed to admit I've seen that movie. I've seen that movie. Well, me me too. All I have to say, I would never watch it if I wasn't sat in an airplane seat for 12 hours. Well, the thing about Uh, airplanes is that it's a great excuse, whether you're doing it on a laptop or or you're, you know, running your credit card. It's a great excuse to uh, watch movies that you would otherwise not be able to bring yourself to watch. So, uh, I mean, I've seen some. I've got to tell you. That's when I catch up on my movies. Yeah, it's, um, it's, but then the, another couple things I saw were at. Well, this is not an old one though. Allied, which is another Brad Pitt movie, uh, which I have to say was pretty good. Um, maybe not action movie. It's more drama slash thriller, I think. But uh, definitely a good watch. Um, <clears throat> that's where I catch up on my movies. All right. Well, Lori, so, thank I'm you for right. thank you for calling in. Have a great weekend. Appreciate it. Um, so, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to hit a break here and we're going to talk about the Dumbledore army, I think at Harvard on the other side of this. And I'll tell you some, maybe I'll tell you some college, college crazy stories of of my own, not of the like beer drinking animal house variety, but of the, the progressive lunacy that even I was exposed to. I've got, I've got some stories and some stuff. Um, and we'll be right back. Harvard students. According to Heat Street here, have formed something they're calling 
Dumbledore's army to fight Donald Trump. Uh, what is it with these? Now Now even the, the most elite schools don't seem to have any shame at all about their students uh, acting like a bunch of uh, coddled little babies. Um, this is, let, let me just give you some of the background here. Students at Harvard University have launched a resistance school to fight against the tyranny of Donald Trump. The students at Harvard's prestigious John F. Kennedy School of Government compare their movement to Dumbledore's army inspired by J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter fantasy novels. I, I also, I never, I've never read a Harry Potter book, and I know that makes me some kind of, uh, some kind of cultural ignoramus in some circles because Harry Potter is supposed to be so amazing. My girlfriend's read all the Harry Potter books. I haven't read any of the Harry Potter books, and uh, I get I've seen one or two of the movies. I was not; it wasn't really my thing. But but this is a four back to Harvard and the activism here. It's a four week program that will quote sharpen the tools we need to fight back at the federal, state, and local levels to combat Trump's agenda. First of all, I wish that I had the self regard that. I would be a one man or one woman, well, in my case, a man, because gender is binary, but I mean, in, in theoretically, we're talking about here, the, the royal we or the royal I or whatever, that I could be on campus and think that as a college student, I'd come up with a resistance movement to over to fight back against the politics of the Trump administration. But a, a bigger thing for me is I don't understand how all the, how all these college kids and, and everyone else really thinks that Trump is going to be so terrible for them. Um, and I also wonder sometimes how it is that I missed this hysteria. By all, by all rights and, and by all m- metrics and historical reality and everything else, I mean, I should be not one of these kids that thinks he's Dumbledore's army, but I, I should at least buy into some of this. And I never have. So that's a part of me I, I can't really explain. I grew up here in New York City. In Manhattan, in the center of in the center of the city, in the progressive heartland of the city, <laughs> the, the, not the heartland, the progressive heartland of the city. Although I think now Brooklyn is probably more cutting edge progressive in some ways. Brooklyn is really a very it's it's the the heart of, of hipsterdom, and you, know, you could go back and forth. But, but the whole city is a, a giant Democrat stronghold, of course. And I, I don't go to bed at night worried about Trump. Obviously, I, I support his agenda. I don't understand what it is about all these other people that I somehow missed, right? As somebody who grew up, it's usually you'd say it's about background or it's about those who are around you. But I just look at all them like they're crazy. Like, what is wrong with these people at, at Harvard? First of all, the Kennedy School, um, I don't want to get myself into trouble here because I'm somebody who chose not to uh, get a master's or an MBA but could have and, and applied and got into some of these places, but I just didn't want to spend the money because I didn't want to be paying back loans for a very long time. Maybe it was a good move. Maybe it's not. Uh, you know, keep keep telling people at the radio show, everybody, it will be a good move. So help me out on that. Uh, but the Kennedy School is one of these places now that you pay a lot of money for a master's degree that sounds fancy. But most people I know who went to the Kennedy School, when I ask them what they've learned, and I know a lot of them because it's a common choice for those who are in uh, government and want to get a fancy degree uh, who are in international relations and and want to work in politics in some capacity. Uh, what did you learn? Eh, you know, I took some classes on some stuff. 
it's not like you come out of there and all of a sudden you're a, <laughs> you're a, a, a different, um, you're operating with a different skill set than when you got in there. A lot of these places, it's just if you can pay six or seven, if you're willing to pay sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year, which is what they cost, you can get yourself a master's degree that sounds really fancy. Uh, the Harvard MA program in political science is actually much more uh, rigorous, as I understand it, than the Kennedy School of Government program. But I digress. That's quite a digression, I know. But I do wonder sometimes. I read about these Dumbledore's Army kids at Harvard and these other places. What 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 is so different about? How do I see all of this so differently from all of them? I mean, let's be let's be real here, everyone. You got Trump is a billionaire, um, thrice married New Yorker with some centrist leanings, to be sure. And they've been convinced; these people have been convinced that are otherwise uh, very high functioning, intelligent human beings that he is evil like Voldemort and needs to be opposed at all costs. If you show up at a school and you want to give a speech and you want to support Trump in some capacity, you run the risk of being shouted down and run the risk of being told you support fascism. What? You know, where is the... uh, I just... I don't understand. I actually, I know I talk about it and I understand it at an analytic level, but at a gut level, I'm like... where, it's either where did they go wrong or where did I go wrong? I'm pretty sure they went wrong. This doesn't make any sense. These are master students who are comparing themselves to an, a Dumbledore's army. They're comparing themselves to a, a children's novel fighting group or something. These kids are like in their mid-20s. They think Trump is so evil. I, I just, ugh, it's crazy to me. Oh, we got a lot of calls. I'm, I don't know, I'm rambling here. Let me take some calls. Uh, Logan in Florida, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Hey, Buck. How you doing? I'm grand. You? Ah, you know, I'm good. I'm excited to get the weekend started here in a few minutes. Ah, uh, yes, Friday. Anything Anything? Oh, anything uh, else? You have a movie quote for me? I'm assuming uh, this sounds like a movie quote call. Oh, it is. Uh, but there's a caveat. It's a sci-fi action movie. So if you don't get it, I can't blame you. Okay, but we'll, we'll, still, we'll still keep it. We'll keep track. It'll go up on the board one way or another. All right. All right, so about being 20 minutes into the film, the two main characters are about to go on patrol. Main character one says to the other main character, 12 serious crimes committed every minute, 17,000 per day. We can respond to around 6%. Side character says, which 6%? Main character says, you're show rookie, you tell me. Hmm. Uh, is this a Tom Cruise, like, future crime thing? Uh... Without Tom Cruise, it is sci-fi action. Yeah, obviously hit the buzzer. I'm, I'm, uh, all right, what is it? All right, it's Dread, and the main character was Judge Dread. That's an action movie. It's terrible from what I understand, but it's an action movie. Oh, well, uh, be honest. Is it kind of a terrible? I mean, it can be terrible, good, but is it a terrible movie? Don't let's be real. I just watched it last night. It's my favorite movie of the year, which was I think 2012. Uh, the Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd? No, no, no. Uh, uh, I can't remember the actor, but he plays Bones in the new Star Trek movies. He plays Judge Dredd, the new one. Oh, I'm thinking of the one, the Sylvester Stallone one from like 15 years ago or something. That's uh, that's because I remember reading a review of it, and it was like this is one of the worst things that's ever been filmed. 
Yeah, that's the Stallone one. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, Stallone. You know, Stallone is. It's not all. It's not all great. It's like it's like it's not all Mozart on the screen. That that I could say. <laughs> I am the law. Uh, I don't know what you just said, but anyway, thanks, Logan, for calling in. Um, Felix in Pennsylvania on WAEB. Hey, Felix. Hey, Buck. Shield tie. Shield tie, Felix. I got, I got one for you. Maybe slightly outside, but uh, if God did not intend them to be sheared, He would not have made them sheep. I mean, these are obscene. Like, uh, I mean, okay, I'm having a rough one today. What is this? Eli Wallach from the Magnif- the original Magnificent Seven. Oh, come on. Calvera. We're calling it Magnif- Magnificent Seven is, is a Western. It's not an action movie. This is action <laughs> this is action okay, movie here. quote Friday. Okay. Like uh, I, I, I need guys with, with I need guys smoking cigars right. wearing wearing preposterously little for being in a tactical military exchange of fire. And, you know, carrying, like, bandoliers with grenades that they never use, but they just look cool. I mean, action movie stuff. All right, here, here's one for you. All right. You've been sitting behind the desk so long, you forgot the feel of a loaded gun in your hand. Um, one of the Lethal Weapon movies? Nope. Ah. Oh. Liam Neeson in Taken. Okay. Before he before he shoots the uh, the French. I mean, we uh, have a, we, we played a couple of Liam Neeson quotes here. A very particular set of yeah, skills. Yeah, I, so. I, su- I suggested that one actually. That, you were the suggester. Thank you. That was the. There we go. Now now you're putting a happy face, uh, or I'm putting a happy face on. I appreciate that. All right. Well, Felix, you got you got me on the second one. I'll give you that. I have a Magnificent Seven. And it's an old school western. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There is not a single member of the Magnificent Seven that has ever taken steroids, to my knowledge. So I just don't know if it's an action movie. I just don't know if it if it qualifies. But thank you for calling in. Um, let's do uh, one more call here because we got one. Uh, Alex in Alabama, WBUV. Hi, how you doing? Good, sir. How are you? I want to ask you a question, but I want to do. Before I ask you a question, a movie quote. <laughs> oh, man, the movie quotes are coming fast and furious. Yes, sir. Okay, here we go. The bastard smiled at me. Smiled at me. That's it. Uh, I don't know, but it's... I, what is that? He hit the buzzer. <laughs> And we're gonna we're gonna erase this segment from the podcast because I'm getting too many I'm getting too many uh, gongs here, too many buzzed out uh, situations. What is it? Godfather one. That's we're not, not a, no no <laughs> retract off the list. It is yeah. Thank you. No, we need to undo. The Godfather is not an action movie, Alex. No, I have to draw the line somewhere. Okay. As the I'm, dude I'm, as the dude I'm, says, this is not nom. There are rules. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry, Alex. I appreciate you calling in. I'm just messing with you, man. Did you have something else on your mind? One question. Uh, the deal with Syria, if we were to go ahead and the sink Western shipping, what do you also think would happen? If we were to go ahead with what? If we were to go ahead and take, if we were to go ahead attack Russian shipping in Syria. Oh, attack Russian shipping? Uh, we would have a very big problem on our hands. Alex, thanks for calling in. We're at the end of the show. But yeah, no, attacking anything Russian would be a very big no-no right now. Um, and any time in the future, I think, as well. Uh, so, all right. Download the podcast. Buck Section with America now on iTunes. Uh, have a great weekend, everybody. Shields high. <laughs>